Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of When I Grow Up. On today's episode, it is my pleasure to welcome my guest, John Cho. Hey John, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Blair? I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me tonight. Um, I'm really excited. Uh, you guys, I don't know anything about what he does, but he we met randomly in Atlanta. <laughs> it was pretty random. Yeah, yeah. And he... Um, and one thing led to another, and he was sharing. You were actually sharing with my husband David about what you do, and then David got super excited, and he was like, "You Blair, you have to meet this guy." Um, so I'm just gonna leave it at that, and then I'm gonna say, John, what is it that you do? <laughs> Great, yeah. So um, if you want to talk about what my title is, so I am the vice president of digital platform services and technology at a company called. Robotic research, which is also you can look it up as rr.ai. Mm-hmm. If I just had to put, just in the simplest terms, what that company is all about, their specialty is off-road autonomous driving vehicles. So um, think like if you ever thought of like ice truckers uh, mm-hmm. from Discovery Channel, you see those trucks out in the middle of nowhere in Canada moving logs. And that's a real dangerous job. Uh-huh. Um, and so we we look to automate those trucks so there's no drivers in those trucks. And we because at the end of the day, like it's really dangerous and it's just not a fun job if if all sorts of stuff goes on in the background. So that that's what we do. We 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 build robotic trucks uh, and other types of vehicles uh, that basically drive themselves. And so my my particular job is really working to modernize the, the IT platforms and securing the company uh, from things like, you know, property theft or like intellectual property being stolen, like source code, software, hardware, and just helping the company also accelerate their ability to get their products, these robots, into the market. So hopefully that gives you, a, in a nutshell, what I do. Okay, that's crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, for somebody that like, knows nothing about that world at all um first of all i had no idea that those car uh those trucks that you were talking about um are unmanned and um they're just so how do okay so in this example that you gave like how do how do the trucks get out there in the first place that's a good question so i i do want to say it was a startup it is a startup Uh so uh this is an emerging industry and so i'm not the only i mean if you look up autonomous driving trucks um there's a lot of companies trying to do this okay and of course you might the most famous car company that's out there right now trying to do that is tesla mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so in the example i gave you there's a type of semi truck called a class eight truck it's one of the heaviest trucks out there and it's designed for both on road meaning on driving on highways as well as off-road vehicles and so if you think about it when you're doing like lumber no one's going to build paved roads all the way to the forest because once you chop down all the trees, you know, it's just way too much money and too much time, especially in those extreme conditions mm-hmm. to, you know, to build roads to wherever you're going to deliver lumber. So these trucks have to get off the road and go to where those lumberjacks are and, and let them load up the lumber there and then drive them out of there without getting stuck. So these are pretty heavy duty trucks, right. not just your average semi trucks. Right. Um, and so we, we have, We've been working with a couple of companies, both in the Canadian sector or the Canadian area, as well as down in Texas. Uh, They do a totally different thing. Uh, And we basically have been working to automate these trucks. And so getting the drivers out of those trucks is important because it's it's frankly the the drive is very dangerous Mm. and it just costs money. You got to you got to pay these guys to risk their lives to do this. So, yeah. Um, Okay, that's kind of I've never actually thought about that but um (laughs) it's like you know what i mean like i mean that's what i really actually really love about this this uh podcast platform john is i talk to people and literally areas of my life that i never thought were even like you know something i should think about but this is very important i you know like even just for the way the future is like where we're headed right now too like it's not that far off and um Okay, so you said that your job specifically is to protect the 
What did you the call technology. it? The technology. Yeah. Okay, right. so like, how does how, can you get a little more into de- without like I don't know how much yeah, you can yeah, share with sure. me? But so <laughs> it, it, it's no secret. Like, so robotics um, is what we would call a dual use technology. In 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 the grand scheme of things, it's a technology that could be used for when they say dual use, it could be it could have a civilian commercial use, uh-huh. and frankly, it could have a military use. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so when we talk about protecting this technology, there are um, other companies, there are other countries that would like to take this technology and use it for their own means. Sometimes sure. it's to make a competing product. Sometimes it's to use it for other things that are more around the nation state side of things. So this technology is highly coveted. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to protect it, it means you know making sure that the data and the software can't be easily copied can't be tampered with. Um, there's also people who would like to find ways to uh, take like a robot like this and make it go left instead of go right, uh, mm-hmm. or make it go fast and then go instead of going slow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so my job is to make sure that we secure this technology. And then the other part of what I do is making sure that our technology is easily usable. It's um, we we try and make sure that our employees can work without having to get stuck trying to figure out how to like say anything from using their their uh, their projectors to making sure their laptops are doing what they are supposed to be doing to mm. making sure that they have a, a an area uh, maybe we build servers in the cloud so they can actually run simulations so we help them do all that without them having to think about it they just need to focus on building the products and making sure that those products are being uh, developed and tested Wow. Okay. So what does a typical day for you look like then as a VP of all of those things that you said? <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's pretty busy. So, you know, if you've uh, had any experience, or you've seen what startups are like, um, it's very fast paced. Mm. And so typically what would happen is, you know, I'll probably come in, you know, pretty early in the morning and we'll have like the best way I can describe it is, We'll have uh, a series of quick meetings up front in the morning to try and understand what are some things that have to get done during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it requires you to sometimes make decisions in the morning and realize that you need to do a pivot and make another decision that might change what you made in the morning. Because in a company, in a startup, that that can literally happen. Like you could be one moment having a position of doing something and then something has changed like by lunchtime and then you're having to rethink that decision uh, in the afternoon. Oh my goodness. So it's about having a lot of patience. Mm. Um, it's also making sure that, you know, you have to be flexible in a startup because that's just part of the game. It's not, it's not a, it's not like people are just disorganized. Sometimes you literally have to figure out, okay, this didn't work. And if we dwell on this too long, then that's going to be bad for the company because we're a small company. You know, mm-hmm. we're only about 300 something people. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, um, if you don't use your money correctly and you spend too much time doing something that you know is not right, then, you know, you might be spending a lot of extra money that you otherwise could have spent doing something that would make the company successful. Sure. Um, okay. Sorry, this is really random. But, but like, as you're talking, I realize what what qualifies a company as a startup company. Oh, no, that's a good question. So, so generally speaking, uh, startups are usually companies that have this either a service or a product that they're trying to basically build and sell broadly, like commercialize it. Um, mm. So. Many times, uh, like a, a good example, like Tesla, which I'll go back to Tesla, the idea of an electric car was prior to, to that whole company starting up was sort of a pipe dream. Like people weren't really sure that that could really happen or it wasn't going to happen anytime soon. And mm-hmm. so that company had a unique idea of making cars, you know, run on just electricity. Mm-hmm. And so that was a total game changer. It had never been done. So generally speaking, startups have products and services that are entering the market. They're pretty usually pretty new or haven't mm-hmm. been done before, or there's something newer about what they're doing. They don't have, you know, a lot of startups have investors, but they don't they don't necessarily have 
um, they're not stable. I would say mm-hmm. that there's there's still it still remains to be seen if the company is going to be viable. So it's a bit risky. Like that's why some folks say, you know what, I'm just and that's totally fine. I'm just not going to do startups. That's a little bit scary for me. Right. Um, but that's that's what a startup is generally is. It's basically a small company that's trying to build a product or a service that can be then sold broadly and to a point where the company is sustainable and growing. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically that. Okay. So how, how um, old is RR? That's a great question. So most startups generally speaking are maybe anywhere from just a few months to, you know, three or four years. Robotic research is over 20 years old. Oh, and wow. so let me explain a little bit about that. So the first 20 years of its existence, it wasn't a startup. It was an engineering consulting company for the government. I see. And so they service like, the Department of Defense and places like that. And then the technology, as they were building technology, they were able to realize early on, wow, we have something here. Like, And they began to patent this technology. And then mm-hmm. investors said, you know what, this technology is, you know, it's it's very compelling. We think you shouldn't just be a consulting company. We think you should build real products off of this technology and you should sell it. And so investors are like, let us help you do that. And of course, the investors are obviously looking at trying to make a lot of money off of something like this. So they give you money up front and then you are supposed to go deliver a product that's going to you know, sell like gangbusters and then they get their little cut at the end. And so that's kind of the happy story of a successful startup. Oh wow. Okay. So so just recently in the last 20 years is when they kind of qualified as a startup. Well, I would I would even argue like this just to be clear Blair. So I think the first 20 years it wasn't really a startup. It was a very niche consulting services company, but at the end of 2021 a bunch of investors came together and said we're going to we're going to give you money and we oh. want you to pivot from being a engineering services company to being a startup. I see. Okay. So starting in 2022, we became a startup. We, we stopped crazy. becoming this old 20 year old robotics company that just did stuff for the government. And we started building stuff for ourselves and decided to go, we want to go commercial. We're not just going to sell our, our hours, you know, as consultants to the government, we're going to actually build stuff, build real robots. And we're going to have it, we're gonna have we're gonna sell them to to Europe. We're gonna sell them to Asia. We're gonna sell them to the United States. Oh wow! Okay, that's amazing. Have you been there for a while? No. Uh, so I started my journey with robotic research. Um, it would seem like a while, but it was probably like June of last year, June of twenty twenty. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. so this so I feel like then that means you were a necessary component to the startup. Yeah, they actually right. That's that's actually well. I you know without tooting my horn too much. No, no, but had, it's okay. They, they we had, can do that here. <laughs> no, they had very specific things that they were looking for. So sure. they want to assemble a team of people who know what they're doing, mm. will generally do it the right way the first time, and so and get them all together and say we got to go, you know, we got to go for the gusto and achieve these objectives. Okay. So, okay, that makes so, yeah. sense. That makes sense. Yep. Um, so, you know, you're talking about protecting the technology itself. Uh, can I ask you, like, in a broad term, what does that look like? Because for me, I'm yeah. like, what What does that mean? Like, you're implementing software to protect it. People are oh, actually yeah. physically coming to steal it. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it could be – so the most simplest things would be, like, you know, encrypting your hard drives, okay. right? Just, okay. Just making sure that – the data, if someone was to take the hard drive out of the laptop or out of a computer, like they couldn't actually read it. I see. But you also want to encrypt things as it's transmitting across the network. So it's not just encrypting what we call data at rest. You want to encrypt it as it's transmitting or as it's moving. Um, and then you also want to, uh, I would say, you want to make the code um how you you want to modular modularize the code so that if they take a piece of the code, mm-hmm. they're not taking the whole thing. Oh, um, yeah. So that and and I guess another way. So there's another way to look at this too. Like so, for the robots, we want to make sure, for instance, like you can't tamper with the robot. So mm. if you try to put like your USB stick in there and try to like 
you know, download stuff into the robot, you know, we would want to turn off that port so you couldn't do that. Um, okay, that's so scary. <laughs> yeah, or or if you, you know, if you like, if you think about like, um, like airplanes, I mean, you know, uh... you don't want someone to just come into an airport get down on the on the tarmac and start messing around with the right, plane you right so you, you know it's easy to dress up maybe as a you know a fake you know uh technician and go out there and do stuff so they have to put in things that are, that you know uh you know they have to put in like access controls like username and password is probably one way to look at it but uh, making sure that you can't just access the computer system just when when you want you you're gonna have to control that and make sure that only authorized people can do that okay man that's crazy to think about just like someone coming and like trying to mess with that kind of technology that's it's like m things i watch in the movies john <laughs> It, it's it's real stuff it's real yeah stuff. yeah i mean so so you mentioned movies and and um so I'll, I'll tell you something else I do that's a little bit interesting. That's, yeah. So I, I work at the National Academy of Science. I'm a consult for the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And so when you mention movies, it's funny. So what and what ends up happening in that is it's a it's a pro bono job. So sometimes we'll have um, producers or movie writers or directors come in and say, you know, I've got this idea, or I have this movie, or I have this TV show. It's uh -huh. a sci-fi TV show. And it's season three, and like the fans are saying, there are these plot holes, and we got to come up with believable like resolutions to those plot holes. Uh -huh. So they'll come to people like myself and say, okay, what's believable that we can say about say like hacking into a computer? So right. if you watch some of these you know sci-fi shows and they show like people on the computer trying to hack and you're they're breaking they have like thousands of passwords they're typing in or they're using some kind of automated system to break into something you, you got to it's got to be believable right it's uh -huh, got to look uh -huh. like they know it's not like some fake stuff so uh -huh. people like me will consult with these guys and say okay here's what kind of like the real world looks like when it comes to this sort of stuff so that when they do create something that's really cool it's believable enough that the audience will say yep that that makes sense what <laughs> That's so cool. I mean, I guess that makes sense that they would do that. Oh, wow. Yeah, and every, every sci-fi movie does that, right? So, like, if you think of, like, uh, World War Z or you think of Star Wars or Star right. Trek. I mean, they they if you think about a lot of the technology that they're showing there, yeah, it's very futuristic. But they have to talk to real scientists and engineers and people who know that space. Like right. World War Z, they probably talked to virologists and they talked to, you know, uh, people who are in the healthcare field to understand what does a pandemic look like when you have a virus going crazy, like all over the place, right? Right, right. Oh so my they, they, they need to be able to make it believable so that the audience will say, yep, that's exactly what I would have imagined it to be like. That's fascinating. Um, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I guess I've seen that, you know, like cop shows too. They have to ask real cops, like, how is yeah. this believable? Makes sense. Um yep. So I have to ask John, like, can you take me all the way back to the beginning? Like, you know, as far back as you can remember, because um, I'm so curious, like, you know, what was it like for you growing up? Um, uh, yeah, you told me before we started recording that you were born in Texas. But, yeah. you know, I, I just I'm I'm so curious, like, how does one become somebody that is sought out for this particular job in this company, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you, if I'm, if let's just, let me just be clear. Like it's not, there's not so, there's no overnight success and stuff like this. Yeah. I think just like a lot of Asian American kids, I had a lot of expectations put on me by my parents. Mm. You know, they wanted me to be in, you know, either like some sort of engineer or, or a lawyer or a doctor, you know, no different from the next kid who, who had a similar life experience. Um, and I was determined to do something like that. I, I mean, it wasn't like totally like, no, I'm not doing that. Sure. I, I wanted to, you know, I, I didn't have anything else going on. So yeah, that's, that's the only thing I knew. Let's go do it. I think what it really took is you, as you get through high school and as you get through college, I, what I try to to tell people who are really 
wanting to understand this is that it requires real introspection, meaning mm. I think you have to have a an honest view of who you are. And when I say honest, another word I could use is humble. You have to really know who you are. And mm. uh, if you don't, I'm not saying you've got to know exactly who you are, but you've got to really be chasing that process down of understanding and committing yourself to understanding the things that your body, your mind resonate with. Mm. I also think the other part of this, it, it takes courage because mm. honestly, um, you may feel like you want to do something, but your mom and dad, or maybe your friends, or maybe just the general expectation is that you, you should be doing this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's going to take courage. I want to also say this, like, it's totally fine if you don't decide to do like crazy stuff or explore things that maybe is uh, contrary to what maybe your parents want you to do. Yeah. That's totally fine. I don't think I'm saying that you shouldn't, you shouldn't do what your parents want you to do. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is I think to get to where I was, I think I had to really think hard about what I wanted to do. And I did. I spent a lot of time in high school and middle school imagining and daydreaming about what I'd like to do. And I was okay with, you know, pursuing science and engineering because I like technology. And at the time, they seemed pretty similar. So, you know, I felt like, well, I'm I'm going to probably need a lot of that knowledge. So it's no big deal. I should just go ahead and do that. Mm. But I think I told myself if the opportunity comes, I'm going to try. I, don't, I didn't, I'm not saying I succeeded, but I'm going to try to have the courage to try and explore that. Mm. And there's been several times where I didn't do that because I was too scared or I procrastinated or mm. I just felt like, uh, maybe I spent too much time thinking about it and then the opportunity passed. Um, that's okay. I think that journey is more about following through in that process, knowing that it's going to be a you're you're not going to waltz through that. You're going to bumble through that. It's it's mm. not a easy process. So I think yeah. I think if you commit yourself to understanding who you are and how you fit, I would not say that this generation is really fortunate. We, you know, our parents and our parents' parents didn't necessarily have those kind of choices. So we right. do, and so I think it's important to try and see that. And I think in the Asian American community, like let's just say the entertainment scene. I mean, it's it's kind of, frankly, it's going like gangbusters for uh, a lot of folks. I mean, uh, you see the Chinese and the Korean Americans out there really, you know, they're in Marvel universe. They're, you know, they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff now that frankly, you know, back in the sixties and seventies was very rare. Like you, you just didn't see it. Right. So it, I think the, the sky is the limit. I think it's about imagining it. I think the tough part of it is, you know, you've got to figure out how you're going to wrestle with what you really believe you want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like my daughter, she is a senior in high school and she wants to do certain things that I'm not necessarily sure she should be doing. But <laughs> I've told her, look, if you really love that, if you're really passionate about it, then mm-hmm. I think you need to you need to have wear some thick skin and you need to be willing to fight for that. Yeah. I mean, you just need to be, I mean, that means you might even fight with me, like, honestly, because I'm not here, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your dad and I'm here to help you make the right decisions. Yeah. We can be friends later, uh, but I love you and I want you to do the right thing. And at the same time, I know that I'm not always right, Mm. that I do know that there's times where I've got maybe a, maybe just a, just a different view from you. Mm -hmm. And I may be wrong. I may, I may have underestimated who you are daughter so you're gonna have to convince me and you may have to fight tooth and nail but if you're passionate about it you know I don't really tell her this part then I'm probably going to support you in the end but right right now as far as I'm concerned I don't agree with you so it's up to you to convince me yeah (laughs) (laughs) you guys hear that (laughs) everyone listening right now um no okay yeah, I mean, that's really, I think a lot of it, what you just said for me is actually, John, everything you just said, I agree with, but there's this question, right? It's like, okay, in theory, all of that makes sense, mm-hmm. but how does one, like, because to be that self aware 
and have an understanding of things that you like, I yeah. honestly believe is like very challenging these days. I I would even argue even more so. Like we can you can you know uh, challenge me on this, but like. Because because we're so inundated with social media too, I almost feel like sometimes people are telling you this is what you like, this is what you like, this is what you like. But then it's like, do I really like this? Like, and do we even yeah. have time to reflect on this is what I like? You know what I mean? Because it's like always just fast paced. I feel these days. But yeah. um, I mean, That's like, fair. do you have any practical advice or ways where? You know that self awareness, that humbleness that you're talking about of being kind of introspectively being like, "Hey, what are the things that make me want to, you know, do something?" Right. Like, how does one, you know, start to reflect on those things? Yeah, it's tough, right? And uh, if I'm truly honest, right, I didn't have social media banging at my door right, or like right. on my phone. In fact, we didn't have smartphones back in the day, right? So what I would say is this, right? Without getting too um, too into the weeds, I think when I say being humble, I do think it starts there. Um, humble is more about honestly knowing where you're at. And I think it's about here's some what one thing that I always encourage, uh, especially people I'm mentoring, is try and start with this. Try and start with, okay, every year, you got to do this check every year. Mm. You have to ask yourself, what do I see myself doing in five years? Mm. Now it sounds kind of funny. And and so in 2022, I asked that question. In 2023, I'm gonna ask that question again. Mm-hmm. Some people go, well, five years, I mean, like, I don't even know what to do with that. Like, I don't think that's like, I don't even think that far ahead. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. Another way I would say it is, what do you see yourself doing in 60 months? If Does that help you, you know, make it a little bit more closer to home? Mm-hmm. 60 months. And it isn't about you filling in like month to month and week to week what you're going to go do. It's more about what do you think you want to do in 60 months or in five years? Oh. And so if you said to yourself, well, I'm a college student and, uh, you know, by in five years from now, I want to be, you know, I want to be filming movies, right? Uh-huh. I think you have to then take that goal and then you have to walk it backwards from mm-hmm. that point so that you can understand what is the time and what are the steps that are going to be required to do that. Yeah, so. It's, it's, um, I think social media has a lot of, a lot of good things about it, but it also has a lot of bad things about it. Mm -hmm. This is not a social media activity. This is really (laughs) about you sitting down and really asking that question. I think social media tells you a lot of different things, even gives you maybe what's the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. But I think at the end of the day, it's about, it's about shutting all that out, shutting all that noise out, even shutting out some of the other noise that you're getting maybe from friends and maybe even family and just asking that question, do I dare to dream? What happens mm. five years from now? And if you can figure out what you think is going to happen five years from now, or what your what your maybe what your objective is, walk it backwards on the calendar, and ask yourself, what are the steps that I need to do to take that? Now, it could very well be in that ex- that exercise, you're going to say, well, I don't think I'm going to be filming things, uh, filming movies in five years, mm. um, because. You know, I'm I'm taking out loans in school and like my parents are like dead set on me being an attorney. Even if I didn't do that and convince them otherwise, it would take me like two years to convince them. Mm-hmm. Like you may say to yourself, that's not even possible. Okay. If that isn't possible, then I think you can put that if that's still a goal that you want to have, maybe that's a 10-year or 15-year goal, but in five years you need to come up with another goal. Mm-hmm. And that might be a goal that says, What would what could put me in a better position to achieve that other goal? Maybe it is in five years, I want to be doing a major that I actually want to do mm-hmm. versus being stuck in pre-med. Or I want to do wow. I want to I want to be in an industry that might lead me to that. So for instance, let's say you're engineering and mm-hmm. you're like, man, I but I like, you know. I like esports. I like video games. I mm-hmm. like, well, good news. You know, you don't just because you're in engineering doesn't mean you you can't be involved in that. In that industry, there is so much going on in that space that requires things like electrical engineering. That requires mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of data science. If you're a data scientist, or there's legal stuff in the in the in the game and industry and content, uh, in, in content and 
um, being able to protect content, streaming data, uh, advertisements. There's a, a tremendous amount of things in that wow. space that you could do. Um, let's say you're you're on this. Let's just say you're you're just you can't break out of this this path, and you're going to be a doctor because you've just been convinced, and that's all you know. And you're too scared to do that. Mm-hmm. Your research in the medical field or your work in the healthcare field, you might be able to draw like parallels, like say, how does video games build empathy, or how does empathy and video games help us uh, understand each other better? And maybe is that a, a way that we can handle like mental health issues as wow. opposed to taking video games and like all of a sudden like, oh, you know, I'm depressed and I'm all of a sudden very violent and I'm going to go do these bad things. So I think it's really about thinking really, really hard. And that's why I I, I just want to say, Blair, I, I mean, social media is fine, but I personally think it's, it's not going to help you if you really want to figure those things out. You probably need to just take that. I'm not saying don't listen to or don't you know, have social media by you, but I would minimize it. Right. And I would spend, this is the kind of thing you want to do, just really sitting down and doing some hard thinking. And I think it's worth, you know, it's worth every minute that you can do it, like more than an hour's worth of, you know, Instagram or an hour's worth of TikTok. A minute is more than an hour of that. I would yeah. just easily tell you that. So I know it's hard because some of you guys are just like, that's like what you like and you like watching YouTube and I get it. But I think if you really think about wanting to do something that where you're really controlling or driving an outcome, mm-hmm. it's time to like put those things aside and say, I'll, I'll come back to that. Yeah. But right now I need to do some real thinking and don't be discouraged if you don't come up with ideas. I think it's about wrestling with that. And you're not, you're not alone. Like some people I know they're 20, 30, 40 years old are still trying to figure out what they want to do. <laughs> right, right. So it's, but it's, it's getting, it's getting through that journey and, and just understanding and refining that. So that's a big way to start it. Um, I think the other thing is don't have, uh, it, I have, a, I have fears just like everyone else, but one thing that I struggled with a lot was imposter syndrome. And I yeah. think a lot of people have that. We mm-hmm. just feel like, oh, you know, I could never be that. I can never be the VP of this and that and the other. I can never be a CTO or right? I can never be this great, you know, surgeon. I can never be this actor or actress. Mm-hmm. I think you need to put that, you know, you need to put that in its place by saying, look, I have a lot of real fears about it. There's no denying it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to trust that through the process of understanding who I am mm-hmm. and understanding those things that I want to do, something will come of it. Either I will be convinced that that isn't the right thing for me to do because just the circumstances and the, the maybe the skills that I'm, I have aren't suitable for that. Or there's going to be encouraging signs that say, you know what, I, I do think there's indicators here that say that mm. if I work at this, I'll be successful. And I think it's about doing that more than trying to get this all or nothing answer. Like, like oh my gosh, within the next six months, I'm going to know if I'm an, if, if I'm, an actress or by the next year, I'm going to know if I'm really ready for, you know, to be a medical doctor. I, I think it's too easy to come up with those answers. I mm-hmm. think it's about being methodical about it. And when you do find out, and it might be five months from now, it might be five years from now, having the courage to pivot and say, right. okay, I, this is not what I should be doing and pivot. Or if this is what I'm going to do, go in, go bold. I'm going to do this. Mm. So it's, it's a, those are, those are things that I would really encourage people to do. It doesn't, it's not easy uh, to have that mindset, but I think if you work at it, if you really seek um, to really build up the stamina to really go for what you really want to do, then I think you're going to find that you can build up a resolve that says, I'm going to do this. But going back to my first practical point, you got to bring down the noise. Yes. So social media, like, TV, uh, those things are, I mean, they're fun. I don't mind. I play games too, but you just got to put them to work. You got to give them the time that they deserve, which isn't a whole lot of your time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I would even add to that something as simple as even like your parents, like, you know, just kind of, I know, I know you're a parent and I'm a parent myself now uh, to little ones, but even I find myself not like this is what you should be doing, right? <laughs> but, but um, even, yeah, I really, um, thank you, John, for sharing that. I really loved what you said because, uh, and even like the, the verbiage that you used of like, okay, 
you can't think five years and let's do 60 months. I'm like, oh, that's soon. You know, like I'm like, yeah. okay, what can I do? Um, that makes a lot of sense. So I appreciate you sharing that because I'm now I need to do that with my own life. <laughs> <laughs> be, be patient. You know, yes. like, don't, don't, I mean, this is stuff that I think takes time. And one thing I do see with some of the younger generation getting discouraged is that they think, uh, that they should just figure this all out and mm. or they should have the discipline. I get it. Look, guys, I was young mm. and I didn't have a whole lot of discipline. <laughs> so just I think it's about not giving up and really pushing towards some of these goals. And it, for some people, it's not 60 months. Maybe it's 36 months. Maybe, right. you know, it's something shorter. Um, I chose that because that works for me. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going and making the effort to think further out into the future and not just saying I'm going to play this by, you know, year by year. Or I'm just going to have this goal, but I have no idea temporally how this how is going to get to there. Out. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, okay. So, John, how, like, I'm really curious about your life right now because, you know, what were, like, what did you study in college? Like, does it matter? Like, what? <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, I don't think it really matters. I think it's, it's about aptitude and desire. But just so you know, I mean, I was a, I was an engineer. I was a chemical engineer. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I started off at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And then um, I, I transferred to New Mexico State University and finished my degree there. So okay. for all of you who feel like, oh, my gosh, I should be going to Emory or Georgia Tech or MIT. Yeah. Or, uh, I went to NMSU. And just like a lot of you guys, when I left Michigan, I was pretty devastated because I was like, I've never heard of New Mexico State University. Like, <laughs> I'm like... I'm a little concerned uh, about my future, right? So, uh, but no, I think uh, the beautiful thing about living in this country and being in this in the educational system here, I mean, if you do well, um, you know, there's a statistic I, I I read about, like I believe, like in Harvard, for instance, the top five percent of the students there generally are the ones that end up publishing and and the, the ones that that produce like great works. Of whether the art or inventions or just doing research that gets like a lot of accolades. The funny thing about it is that that stat exists across all the universities. So at New Mexico State University, the top 5% are also doing the same thing. So think about what that means. That means that 95% of Harvard students aren't doing jack. Right. And, and <laughs> at, at, at NMSU, the 5% that are that are doing what they're doing are better than the 95% of the people that are at Harvard. Right. Right. So I guess where I'm going with that is don't get too worked up about what school you're at. I think it's really about understanding, you know, what it is that I want to do. And again, that's a journey. You may Mm -hmm. not know at freshman year in college, you may not know senior year in high school. It's okay. Mm -hmm. But it's about committing yourself to the journey of finding that out and really being uh, diligent, you know, and not letting it be something that is just a side thought or just uh, a frivolous idea. It's something that I think you should take seriously. And mm-hmm. when I say seriously, I just mean you should really be intent on understanding what that is. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should take yourself too seriously. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think you need to take the idea of discovering that as more than just some notion or some hobby. Right. So. Yeah. Um, you know how you're sharing with me about how imposter syndrome and like how, you know, if you just shift your mindset to believe that this is the things that you want and you can do. Um, it's, you know, that's how you get where you are today, but I'm Okay. So I don't know if this, this question's abstract, John, I'm sorry if it is, but like, I guess what I want to know is mm, in your, in the, you know, in your life, was there like a pivotal moment for you where you were like, you know what, like, this is what I, you made the plan and the obstacles that you had to overcome. I don't know, like something like that. (laughs) Do you get what I'm asking you or no? No, I I kind of do. So I can tell you it happened in different parts of my life. It doesn't, there wasn't just a pivotal moment. So I think it's hard for me to identify, hey, this was the moment that all of a sudden changed my life. Mm. So I'll give you an example of where I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. Okay. When I was in middle school, my dad used to help me out with my science for projects. Now, a lot of you guys are probably laughing because maybe your parents did the same thing. But like my dad really did help me out. Like he literally built the stuff. And like I just when I was in middle school, I watched him. Yeah. 
And then in high school, like we, you know, we started doing projects together and he was still doing a lot of the work, but I got more involved. And I always felt like, oh, you know, it's really not my work because it's like my dad is really doing a lot of this. And he was a very, you know, he was a great, he was an engineer. Mm -hmm. I, that's, I followed in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. And so I always felt like, okay, that's where my imposter syndrome was coming from. Like, I'm not a real engineer. It's really my dad who's the engineer and I'm just tagging along for the ride. <laughs> But the funny thing about it was, as I got older, the things that I learned from my dad in those experiences. So this is kind of like anti, it's kind of contrarian to how society looks at education. I do think that the idea in Europe around apprenticeship does seem to really jive for me. And I think it jives for a lot of folks. Like mm -hmm. by by emulating and doing what your parents may be helping you to learn how to do. Mm -hmm. Even like I see so many people who have become great entrepreneurs and business folks because they were helping their parents at the laundromat or they were helping their parents at the donut shop and they just understood, okay, here's how we make money. Here's what needs to be made. I mean, they just got the whole idea. And while it was grueling and it was just, um, this is family stuff and we just got to do it. When they, by the time they got into, you know, college and adulthood, like all of a sudden the idea of startups became like, Oh, I get that because like right. I've been doing it all my life. Yeah. Um, and same thing with me, like building like reactors and building like, like other things that people are like, well, how'd you know how to do that? And I, it's hard for me to explain. Cause I'm like, well, I did it in middle school. And, <laughs> and, and it was me when I say did it, I wasn't doing it myself, but I was like involved. My sure. dad kept me, kept me working on that stuff here, turn this, tighten this up, mix this up. And I think that really matters. And so that journey of, of of that of realizing as I got into college and into graduate school, people were like saying, "Holy cow, you you actually know how to do that!" Like I didn't I didn't realize that, you know, I I just learned that like last year, like kind of mm. thing was a validation point for me. Like, oh, you know, I did learn maybe mm. in the way maybe in a way that I, I I didn't expect. I also think that you get a lot of feedback from your peers and your colleagues. So without tooting your own horn or without making your head too big, I think it's important to try to listen carefully for the feedback you get that says, okay, look, I think you're a great leader, or I think you really are really good at thinking about new ideas, or yeah. you seem to really present your well self the best out of all of us in front of the class or in mm. front of this, uh, in front of the, the board. And it's not that you should put too much stake on any one of those things as like, I've got it made, but I think it's an indicator that that's might be, that may be something, a strength of yours. And it doesn't mean you're, you're done. It just means that maybe I need to keep honing that. Maybe I need to keep developing that and see where it goes. And if I hear it maybe two, three or four times, maybe there's something to it. And I think you have to also be careful. Like there are people who are going to stroke you and say, you know, you're doing a great job. I love what you're doing, but that's just small talk. I think you need to hear from people that you trust. And that mm. they are honestly going to say, you know what? I just want to say, like, when you talk about this, you're really passionate about it. Like, it's so it's so obvious yeah. that you have so much energy when you talk about it. Or, hey, I got to tell you, like, when you were doing this, it really felt like this wasn't your thing. Like, it really felt like it was a struggle. You weren't really into it. Or you, some of the details that really needed to come out, you weren't even thinking about. And I think you need to take that criticism, too, and say, okay, maybe this is either A, something I need to work on harder or B, maybe this is not really my cup of tea. Mm. And you can work, you can pursue excellence and still fail. I think that's important to, to acknowledge. Like you can work really hard, do the diligent work to prepare every day. And if it's not the right thing for you, you could still just be mediocre at it. I think it still could be honored as a good thing, but it may be just a realization that that is not your thing. Mm. So I think you just have to come to that realization and be open uh, I wish there was a formula I could say if you if it, this this and this happens and you're good. I I just don't think that's really how it is. It's more about really listening and seeing and really introspectively understanding who you are in that journey. And it's a that's that's why I think I sometimes feel bad because when I talk about this, it seems nebulous, but it really is centered around honesty and humbleness about who you are and knowing that who you are is still evolving. It's still building. It's still developing. Mm -hmm. But as you take these different inputs and these different feedback loops from other people, friends, peers, you start to begin to see the picture of who you are. Mm -hmm. And some of it will cause you to say, okay, I am, and I said this earlier, I am really good at this. And once you know that, you're going to go bold for that. Yeah. That's what I want to go do. 
So uh, I'll I mean, take I just a quote. feel like that's what we all want, right? And it's like, you know, as a young person, you kind of feel like, am I going to get there? You know, right. like, is it going to happen? But listening to you, I hope people are like, they will realize it does happen. You just got to, I think what you said earlier, just be patient with yourself and, um, yeah, and just be aware of those things. Interesting. I'm like so fascinated right now. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, you have to be patient. If you're yeah. not patient, it will, I mean, and Lord knows, uh, there's plenty of times where I've not been patient. Uh, <laughs> so it's not like, oh, I got patience down. Like, right, you know, no right. one really has that, but I think mm. you pursue patience and you're saying, look, I, I do need to be patient. I need to be honest. Mm. And, and again, it goes back to also fear. Like, I think a lot of what, what it takes to go for the gold, go, right. go bold in something, you know, it takes courage. Mm-hmm. And those things aren't easily acquired just by, you know, thinking about it. I think you take little steps. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's about, you know, it's about being willing to take some risk and people say, well, okay, how do I even start? Well, you don't have to take big risks. You can start with small ones, you know, um, like maybe it'd be as simple as I'm, I've always, I always liked vanilla and today I'm going to try butter pecan, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like, or it's it just something like I, I'm never, I'm never a fan of spinach or I really don't like, you know, um, I don't like kimchi or something like that and saying, well, today I'm going to try it and I'm going to try it as if I could like it. Yeah. Like, I think that's a risk, right? Cause if you're not into spicy food and you don't like fermented cabbage, you know, it just doesn't appeal to your thought process. You might say, ah, oh, I don't like this texture. I don't like how this, but maybe for a second, take a chance and say, mm-hmm. well, let me, let me try to like it. Why, like, why do so many people like it? Like maybe, maybe it's just a little bit about me needing to get to a place where I can at least be open to the idea. And it may start still turn out to be a bad idea. Like maybe you're still not going to like kimchi. Um, but that's, I think it starts there, being able to take the risk. Well, at the end of the day, I still didn't like kimchi, but I'm still alive. Right, <laughs> so, right, you know, yeah. maybe yeah. I'm taking, maybe I'm making this a bigger deal than I should. And, and so hopefully that builds maybe the idea that I can take these little risks. And over time, I think you may have the courage to take bigger risks because you're starting to get in that habit of taking the risks as opposed to just going with what you know. Right. You know, John, I just had a revelation as you were speaking. Um, you know, like with immigrant families, like maybe they were newer immigrant. Fam- My parents immigrated here in middle school. And so they they were raised here in, in the States. And I grew up speaking English in my house. Um, I'm the only child. I grew grew up in an affluent white neighborhood here in Georgia. Um, And my parents always encouraged me to take risks. But I'm thinking as you're talking, you know, depending on the family dynamic of an Asian American household, like I would imagine culturally, it is not um, normal to take big risks or risks at all. And so you saying this right now to me, I'm like, oh, like, yes, it is necessary to take risks. But maybe culturally there is something that keeps us from doing that because of of the way or like what we watched our parents do and how they live or survive in America um, without taking risks. They just want to get by sometimes. and. yeah, I mean, I thank you so much for imploring that right now because I feel like a lot of the times what the podcast for me, what it does and for other people listening is like kind of give that permission to like, hey, this is what it looks like when when you take the risks or this eliminates the fear of the what ifs or what could happen or what does this look like if I decide to go down this path. Um so yeah, thank you for saying that. I really Well, you know, you know what's so ironic about it, right? Is that if you think about it, uh for parents who immigrated to this country, that was a huge risk. Risk, yeah, it was a huge that, risk. That was, that was like a gamble. Like <laughs> I don't even know if I'm gonna even be alive after. So in a way, like after they made the gamble, made it here, you almost feel like they're like, okay, we gotta play it safe because right. we don't wanna mess this up. Yeah. And I and I think it's important to have the empathy. Um 
I think empathy is so important in whatever you're doing, whether you're working with other people in a startup or you're trying to convey a message or you're trying to understand how to lead a group of people, but understanding where they were and seeing kind of the struggle that they had, just getting to a place where they had to actually decide we're going to mm-hmm. go to America mm-hmm. is pretty, pretty darn big. And so yeah. I think, I think I acknowledge that. And I, I, I have a lot of compassion mm-hmm. for them because, uh, you know, for all the wonkiness that they have or the way they carry themselves, you know, man, that's a big deal. Like yeah. it's not, it's not a small, it's not small potatoes. Mm-hmm. So it, I give them a little slack because I know like that they, they, I mean, I'm not here on my own accord. It was them, right. They brought me here. And so getting to a place where they're finally able to say, okay, I think, I think we're good. Right. And and like, don't everyone, everyone don't mess it up. Right. I I get it. And it's funny because then they're like, you know, almost forgetting that they took those risks saying, I'm here to protect you do not do what we did because it was a total flip of the coin. <laughs> so it's kind of frustrating uh, to see that. But but then at the same time, I do have compassion because yeah. you know, it wasn't it, it's not for the faint of heart. A yeah. lot of folks did not make it over to the United mm. States. I think people don't talk about that, but a lot of folks didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um. Uh. Okay. So I what, let me see what time it is. Okay. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, John, I always ask people like kind of similar questions. And so what, what do you like most about your current job? Like, what do you like best about it? Um, I would say that probably one of the things that I really like about my job is that I, I'm in a, I'm in a place where I'm basically working with very disruptive innovation it's it's Mm -hmm. uh and i'm trying to solve really hard problems and i'm working with really smart folks one of the things i also like about that is in my role right now i have the opportunity to mentor people and Mm -hmm. so mentoring engineers mentoring technologists mentoring business people um i i really enjoy that and so it, it is i think about really building a culture of collaboration and openness and transparency um, and doing it in a way that, you know, in the Silicon Valley scene, it's pretty ruthless. Um, there's a lot of folks there. It's very narcissistic. It's very like self-centered, mm-hmm. very self-entitled. Mm-hmm. And people feel like, you know, there's little or no time for things like kindness mm-hmm. and uh, being uh, honest. And I, I I really am committed to trying to do that and mm-hmm. take the time to teach people that, you know, we can we can do things in a way that's uh, more healthier and, and not so driven by say just profit. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to do something that's equitable. Yeah. And so equitable does mean profit, but it's equitable for everyone. And yeah. that's a, that's the, that's a thing that I try to drive home and wherever I go as I want to be equitable and, uh, and, and try to show a selflessness about it because I think if we can show success um, by doing that, we're in a, in a way we're, we're saying that, you know, Greed doesn't have to be the sole reason why you're involved in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say that. I'd say mentoring. I'd, I'd say working with really smart folks, building really, really cool stuff, solving really, really hard problems. Like what are some of these problems you solve? <laughs> well, I'll give you an example of a problem I've solved. Okay. So um, we – if some of you may not remember this, but many years ago, um, there was this thing called the BP oil spill. I remember. Yeah, so, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was pretty <laughs> messed up, right? So at the time I had, um, you know, we had, I was, I had uh, built and designed, uh, I would say I designed and architect a, a data center for the U.S. government. And um, this BP oil spill was a econo- uh, ecological disaster. And so Obama calls up um, uh, this agency that I was working for that weekend and says, we have a problem. He says, here's the problem. The oil spills, based on what our advisors are saying, is, is basically going to destroy all the fishing in the, in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh my Lord. So what we want to do is we want to try and move those fishermen to fish elsewhere. So what ended up happening was they were going to 
move the fishermen from the fishing areas that they normally fish uh-huh. and move them over to where the shipping lanes were and 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 have the ships move de- uh, take a detour away from the area so so the fishermen would shift all their fishing to where where you would normally have ships go you know through kind of like freeways on the ocean okay, they would yes. they would fish in those areas so for that to happen they had to figure out if the water had any oil in it in that area so they had these mobile like water testing kits they were testing all of the these areas in the gulf of mexico but they had to get all that water all those water samples back so we had to reconfigure our data center which was designed for regulatory computations and all this other stuff that i won't get into <laughs> and, and reconfigure this data center practically practically overnight so that we could accept from these mobile water labs um, their water sample data and then bring it back into this agency so they could analyze it and say oh okay this water doesn't have any oil in it we can fish here okay. so that was kind of an out-of-the-box like solution because yeah, it just we we had to rewire everything, and, and so we had to bring our teams in and say, here's what we're here's what we're doing right now. We're gonna take that all apart and rearrange it so that it's set up to allow for us to bring in all these water samples in from the Gulf of Mexico, and that had to happen like within 24 hours. That's crazy! Oh so my goodness! Cool. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh man! So you helped solve that problem? <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I I basically yeah I. I it was, to me, it was I, I think one of my strengths is I think outside the box. And right. so we that's what we ended up doing. I knew I knew how our stuff was set up. I knew how it was organized. Uh-huh. And so I knew I could rearrange and reconfigure it so that it would allow us to do that very quickly for them. So yeah, it was it was great. And um and so yeah, it's it's an untold story. Like people generally don't know like all the work that goes on in any given presidential administration. Right. When when those kinds of calamities occur, a lot of stuff goes on in the back that no one ever hears about. So um wow. <laughs> so you've been in this government kind of stuff for a long time. <laughs> Since yeah, I mean I've been there since about 2008 2009. Okay, that's a yeah. long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a long time. People ask me, well, you know, why you know, when did you start? And I usually say the reason why I started working in the government space was because of the financial meltdown of 2008. Right. The in finance when the Lehman Brothers stuff fell through and it was too big to fail and all that stuff. A lot of us fled to the government because GM Coors, General Electric. I mean, all of these companies were like, uh, I think we're going to like go bankrupt. Mm. So a lot of us fled out of the commercial scene at the time I was working for an international Dutch bank. And I moved to um, I moved to the U.S. government. Uh, I wasn't a federal employee at the time, uh, but I was I was contracting with the federal government. And so. So, yeah, we you know, that was a reason why it, was, it wasn't just me. It was a mass exodus of people. Right, right who went into the government and it, in a way all of that top talent that went into the government the government en- ends up in the next two or three years between 2008 and 2010 and 11 ends up building a ton of really cool stuff because before that time it, it, you know they they didn't have access to those kinds of people right like it wasn't easily accessible but with all of those kinds of people coming into the industry from financial services from the manufacturing industry all of these guys came in a lot of stuff got built really fast and the government was surprised. Like we usually take four or five times at this to get it right. And wow, we're building this like correctly the first time. And I think it was, it was a, an injection of talent into the public sector in the United States uh-huh. that, you know, frankly, I think a lot of innovation occurred in that period of time. So. Wow. Sorry, John, just to clarify a little bit, I know we've been kind of all over the board and I'm starting to gather information about you. But like for me, I'm I'm you started as chemical engineer, but then what and then you like can do a bunch of other things, it seems, and IT stuff and you but like what do you feel like you would like you are specialized in? Oh wow. <laughs> so uh, so uh, so this is gonna be kind of a uh, an anti answer. Okay. Uh so I'll take it. <laughs> I, I consider myself I consider myself a generalist. So like I have that is the, an- who- the most anti answer I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so so 
so seriously, like I have friends who think they are the Jedi Knight of like data science. Okay. Or they are like the master of like um, electrical engineering or, you know, chip design or mechanical stuff. Uh-huh. I'm more of a, a jack of all trades. Okay. And I think the beautiful thing about what I do is that I do see how it all connects. Mm. And I think one thing that's really for those of you who want to get involved in this space, I do think it's very important to be good at a few things, mm-hmm. but I think it's really, really rare. We don't have a lot of people who see the big picture in a way that it, like, not just from a business standpoint, but can look at it a little bit more deeper with some of the details. And so I have enough knowledge in different areas where I see broadly how things are interconnected. And many times we were just very focused on a particular discipline or a particular subject and we don't see how it connects with a lot of other things Mm -hmm. and i think when it comes to building businesses and when it comes to building something amazing um it requires that understanding that's more holistic and so like for me the definition of for instance uh, innovation is the intersection of, of at least three different things so being able to intersect multidisciplinary uh fields into uh into a, a into one single idea, I think that's where innovation occurs. I mean, mm-hmm. it can also occur just because like you can make a better smartphone or you can make a better TV. But when I talk about disruptive innovation, it's usually when two fields or two or three fields intersect at the same time. That intersection point is where interesting thing happen, interesting mm-hmm. things happen. So I look for those kinds of things. Wow. Yeah, that's, it is unique. I'm so not like that, that I just find everybody that is like to be – uh, truly fascinating, and I don't even try to. Pre- I don't try to pretend that I know what they're saying. But um, man, this has truly been so great, John, and I am so grateful for your wisdom. But I have to ask if you could. Is there anything you know that you would like to add to our conversation that you feel like you want young people to know, or um, yeah, would you have done anything differently, or maybe I'm, I don't know. You said you had a daughter, so I'm like, what is you know, the wisdom that you would want to tell that she doesn't listen to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I would say there's probably like, I'll say this, like if I had to give somebody advice, there's probably Mm -hmm. two or three things I think about. One is I already said it several times, but I want to say it again because it really matters. Mm. Be humble. Yeah. Uh, I know it's hard. I fight with myself all the time, but try to be humble because I think when you see yourself and see others clearly, you can make good decisions and you can really, like you can really begin to do things and think about things in the way that they should be thought about. Anything else is just noise. The second thing I would say is be kind. Mm. Um, there's a funny saying I say to some of the guys I've mentored, like say, I always say like, be nice to people when you're on your way up. So they'll be nice to you when you're on your way down. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think it's important, right? I think it's important to be, to be kind uh, because I think that's missing in a lot of like in, in tech, if you're going to be in tech, you know, you don't see a lot of kindness, um, but just even in general society, I think we find ourselves um, with just a real lack of compassion for each other. Mm. Um, and I would say the last thing is make a decision to be an asset, not a liability to others around you. Learn how to serve others. Learn all you can. Um, one of the reasons why I know so much of things is because I got involved in different things. Hey, do you want to learn more about uh, the finances. Sure. I'll learn more about it. Hey, can you help us with the operational side of this stuff? Sure. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Can you be on call while we figure Sure. I'll be on call. Can you uh, work to build these systems? Sure. I'll help and work these systems. So don't be afraid to learn and, and just get involved in different areas of the company or an organization, or even from different companies and different organizations. Cause I think it just starts to build this, this wealth of knowledge and you start seeing the connection points. You realize why people do what they do. And sometimes they're not even aware of why they're doing it, but you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say, you know, if there anything I could do differently, I just wish I had more courage to, do what I felt I should have been doing. There's so many times where I just kind of ran away or mm. said, it's no good. I can't, I can't do that. Or, uh, you know, I just walked away from it because I just felt like, you know, I'd be laughed at, or, you know, I just didn't feel, feel comfortable. Like I had, I had the ability to do it. Mm. And even if you don't have the ability to do it, even if you fail in my, in my language, that's okay. Like, you know, some of the folks that are older than us, their identity is really driven by success and failure. Mm -hmm. But for the younger generation, just remember like 
if you don't succeed, it's okay. It's it's a path to mastery. It's not a failure. Mm-hmm. It's just a path. It's just a journey. So don't take it as a black or white sort of thing. Keep churning. Keep keep moving forward. And, and you're just going to be wiser. You're going to be more resilient. And eventually you're going to realize after all of that experience, kind of where you where your life is kind of moving towards. And like I said, once you find it, once you kind of get a, a, a taste of it, you know, like it's hard to explain, but somehow in your heart, you know, go, be bold, boom, just pivot and just jump for it. So, man, I can only pray about those opportunities. <laughs> what are you talking about? But... You're so young. You're gonna you're gonna find those opportunities. <laughs> don't, don't don't be discouraged. Don't yeah. Just you got to keep at it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Man, John, thank you so much. I hate to put you on the spot one last time, but if there's anybody listening that maybe has more questions about what we talked about, would you be okay with me connecting you somehow? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions, feel free to DM me on social media or you can um, email me at podcastwigu at gmail.com. John, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate you today. Thanks, Blair. Until next time. Bye, guys. Bye. See you guys.